Robert Whitehead sat down with moderator Robert Pizzola for a one-on-one interview in April of 1986. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Hello, and we're thrilled you came in this great weather to to listen to these two gentlemen solve the universe. Um, I'm Robert Pasola, and I'm speaking, of course, of Robert Whitehead and Brian Clark, who, as they always say, don't need introductions. Um, if they did need them, you might want to know, of course, that uh, Ryan Clark was the author of Whose Life Is It Anyway, Kipling, and is currently in rehearsal for the uh, production of the petition that is opening on 24th. the 24th. Also, uh, uh, over 20 or more television plays is what they tell me. Uh, Robert Whitehead, as a producer, over 35 years, uh, beginning with uh, Medea as his first production and has certainly produced some of the finest and most important work in the last 35 years. Arthur Miller, uh, Pinter, you could go on and on. Uh, and recently, of course, and as a director, directed Lillian. Um, what we're going to speak about today is uh, presenting serious work on Broadway, which by its very nature, I think, is can be an intimidating question also very often has negative connotations when you bring up the question because of what we know and because of the state of the theater and all these things that you read in the paper. And I think as as we go along with these two gentlemen uh, answering some questions and at the end, of course, bringing everyone in on it, of course we're going to focus on that and maybe uh, come up with not necessarily the negative thing we already know, but what are the potential solutions if there is and what, what, what is really happening that can make things work. And I'll start with, I think, a real specific question, which is, uh, what are the major factors involved today in bringing serious work to Broadway? Very specific here. (laughs) And maybe, Mr. White, we could start with you, and uh, since, as a producer, in this day and age, here and now, and you're involved with bringing a play to Broadway, what, what are some of the factors that, in this day and age, we have to really be aware of? You say that's a, it's, it's so general. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to be aware of the same things you always had to be aware of. You just have to be a little more aware. <laughs> it's a little more deadly than it was before, but it was always pretty deadly. And I don't think you think about whether it's a serious work or not. When you talk about that, it, it worries me a little bit because I don't really ever think of whether it's serious or not. It's usually something that I feel connected with and I want to do and I feel excited about it. And I don't, I, I suppose I realize that it's challenging in a way. Uh, and, uh, but I don't, I, I probably uh, at this point have thought uh, of plays in terms of whether they were serious or whether they weren't. I think for most of my career I've thought about whether they were good or whether they weren't. Whether they had something that I found had some life of its own that appealed to me and I could only hope if I did it well that it would find its way into the the mind and the life of the people who are watching it. I still feel the same way. 
So I don't really ever separate the play in terms of being serious or non-serious too much, because I think the best comedies are serious, as, just as they, uh, the dramas are. Uh, I suppose that if they... I suppose today it's tougher. There's no question, but it's not... It, it, it's tougher, I think, because of the lack of writing that's been going on more than... Uh, I know there's a great, terrible economic problem, which I can discuss at great length, uh, that's happening, but uh, the, the, to answer your question, I could just go on wobbling around and answering forever, because when you say what are the major factors, the major factors, I suppose... The major factor, or why aren't we having more plays that are serious or non-serious? That's the major factor. Okay. And and from what you're saying, you feel the plays themselves aren't there, versus say, a golden age when there were more. Plays well, the there. professional writers aren't there in the same sense that they were. Do you feel is that a situation that you're aware of that you, you see here in America, and do you think it's different in in England? Yes, it's it's very different in England. Um, I think the major factor is that England has a, de a decent television system. Um, America, handed, having handed over its prime means of talking to itself, to salesmen, they've eliminated television as a serious medium for anyone to use. In England, all of us write for television. I was just mentioning the Alan Bennett piece, for example, a monologue for Patrick Rathage, but it's all the time. Just before I left, I saw a wonderful play by Christopher Hampton with his television. Stop Hard, I think Stop Hard's best play. It's a television play. Pinter's written for television. We all write for television. The directors all direct for television as well as the theatre. Or many of them do. And the actors move between the two. So it means that there are a thousand, maybe two thousand playwrights in England can earn a reasonable living. Now, they don't earn television money like you do in America by no means but you can certainly make a living writing seriously for television so out of that pool of a large number of professional writers all the time seeing their work being rehearsed by top class actors and directors the average standard of writing is very much higher and uh, I mean I, I've I don't know, it's over 20, probably over 40. I don't know how many plays I've written. But f for me, to, when I write a play, I mean, I, I never spend any time hassling and hustling it uh, because it gets done. There is this enormous market. Secondly, that's the first reason I think that the writing seems so much healthier in England than here. The other one is, of course, we have properly state-funded theatres. So there is the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre Company and other theatre companies in London, like the English Stage Company and so on, all of which receive subsidies. Um, we also have the Arts Council, which has bursaries for writers. If, if a, if a theatre wants to commission a new writer, or they, they, they can get... <coughs> you know, it's not a fortune, but you can get £4,000 to give to a new writer to write a play. And this state subsidy is also keeps the thing bubbling. So that's a start. And tying that in, do you feel, in talking about, say, the lack of plays that we have here, if some of the reasons, you know, are for those reasons, bringing in television and film here, and you often hear that, you know, a lot of the writers have 
gone into television and film yeah. in America to make to make the money. I think that's where the talent may have gone. Yes, I do. Uh, I think it has to. I, I mean, if you look back to a period when our, our, our theater was very prolific, and the theater in New York, the Broadway theater, whatever theater, was prolific, and we had 200 openings in a year in the late 20s, and even in the worst years of the Depression, we had 120 plays open in a year. Uh, possibly a little bit less because there may have been a few musicals. There was always many, many, many more plays than musicals. And a little while ago, when you referred to that period, six or eight years ago, when our theaters were filled, they, were, they, were, they weren't filled with plays. The quality of the work was, was not better. The quality of the work remained just about as uninteresting as it has been for quite some years now. Theaters were filled with sort of nightclub shows that were basically the musicals. Since there weren't the plays, they felt, what can we do to fill theaters like the, the Brooks Atkinson and the uh, Long Acre and the Plymouth? So, so we were getting kind of nightclub musicals coming in. We still are, as a matter of fact. And so that it was just sort of a fluke for a year or two. There was a few of those that were cooked up, and they filled some of the theaters that would and should have plays in them. Uh, if you go back to that earlier period in the late 20s or 30s when we had a lot of openings every year going on here we did also have quite a lot of writers I mean you had at one time all those that gang that everybody knows like S.N. Behrman and Elmer Rice and Maxwell Anderson and Sidney Howard and Robert Sherwood and Clifford Odets and you know Moss Hart and Kaufman it goes on and on from the time of the First World War right through in the really into the 50s, we had writers. And though a lot of those writers, and I only mention a few of them, they were all pretty well known. They were very professional theater writers. And every year or two, they had a play come up. And they were the kind of body of the theater. We don't have that anymore in the same way. They, uh, what happened to those people? What happened to them, presumably, is that if they left school or left college and, and had some gift for writing they probably went from a newspaper into television a lot a lot of a lot of playwrights came out of journalism and wanted to write a play or they came out of some public relations sometimes but somewhere where they were writing for periodicals or something and they wrote plays and they wrote two or three and finally they wrote one that worked and they kept doing it and all those names that i mentioned along with many others were doing it right through a period of time which kept our theaters filled and our our theaters filled with work that had some real quality in it too they're not Tennessee Williams. That kind of brilliance bursts on the scene once or twice in a century or three times, but they don't. that doesn't keep the theater going. That keeps the anthologies going. <laughs> what keeps the theater going are those guys that wrote all those plays that filled our theaters in the 20s and the 30s, and they were very good playwrights. They were professional playwrights. We don't have that same thing now. So the answer is for you to answer. Why don't we have them? I think probably that a lot of people who had the same level of talent and the same gift those guys had probably got himself involved in television and found he was writing it fairly easily and fairly well. He had a gift for words, and finally, at the age of 35, he's making about $350,000 a year, and he's not going to ever write a play. And uh, whereas I think in many cases they could have. They'd sat down and they had the talent to write a play. And, and uh, but the tragedy is in America, isn't it? So that I don't think they lost them to the theater. They've lost them to the theater. 
I think. It's an interesting paradox because in one sense it sounds, in England, television itself is a force that's creating the writing. In America, it sounds like television is taking the writers away from the theater where it feeds it. Um, Well, it's had something to do with it because suddenly writing, there was a lot of money up front. When you write a play, you write a play and it's a lonely business and there's no money. Theoretically, a playwright writes a play and he writes what he wants to write and only what is inside him. And then he sends it around to a lot of us hoping that he'll get a production. But uh, now I suppose that uh, there's such a, a mass of material being ground out of television so often and all the money is up front. I mean, I even notice it in the theater. I have writers calling saying, I'd like to try and write a play and I'm looking for an advance of $10,000 or fifteen or $20,000. That was never heard of 15 or 20 years ago. In fact, writers called me back in those days and said, look, I'm in the middle of a play, and when I get far enough along, I'd like to talk to you about it, because when I get into this draft a little further. And there was no question of any big advances. It was a question of whether the play they were on would be a, something that might be interesting to produce. Well, let me ask you something which, which, again, relates to this, going one step further. If, in fact, there aren't these plays, but even if there were these plays, Given the economics and what's really happening, and this is speaking as a producer, and what you mentioned these musical review type things being done in Broadway houses, given the economics and what the audiences are going to see, do you think that uh, if the producers themselves who are, and the theater owners, are as willing today to put, even if they find this great play versus you know, this big musical or this event, do you think they feel the audience is there to support a play? that may have been there. Well, I think the, yeah, the audience, I think, has been very badly damaged because of the, that condition. And we won't go into the price because obviously they've been hurt by the price. But what, what, what has happened, it seems to me, is that that theater-going audience was, was an audience and a, a, an atmosphere out of which musical work, I'm not into, against musical work. Those nightclub musicals that I'm talking about that went into theaters that should have plays in, they just were nightclub musicals. I don't even count them. Either they're some kind of entertainment. I think musicals can be absolutely marvelous. But when musicals were marvelous, I don't think there are any now that are marvelous. I think most of them are all junk. They're all imitations of imitations, or they belong in Las Vegas or something. Uh, and, uh, but when they were marvelous, they were an outgrowth of the theater. In my mind, the, 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 the diminishing of, uh, of the volume of production in the theater has had a terrible effect on musicals. Somehow, the musicals that were interesting and original came, well, largely they came from books that had been the theater, had been plays. The, the thought that was going into the theater, the changes that were taking place in the theater, were again reflected in those musicals. The ballets became str- strangely, interestingly psychological in a, as a result of, uh, of the books that they were choosing to write. The, the quality of the show, the musical, and the, lyri- the, the, the show numbers had a a whole character and quality of their own born out of the, the, the kind of qualities of the text itself, the book as we call it. So that there was, was they weren't just, just pop songs. There were pop songs, but they were pop songs that had a character born out of the quality of that work from which they were derived. The same thing went with the dances, and that was what we called, I guess, the great American musical when it was at its best. But it always was an outgrowth of a vigorous theater. In a funny way, the theater was the the kind of foundation of the work out of which came these occasional musicals. And it would usually be about two, two or three at the most, two, ten or a dozen plays. And uh, 
so that I, I contend that we're not going to have any great musicals until you get a good theater back again. Let me ask you, Brian, uh, in a little bit of different direction, what, what, what differences do you notice in, uh, say, the pr- producing your plays in England versus in America uh, in, from uh, both talking about the produ- producing end of it itself and then what you encounter in, in the, the whole rehearsal process? So what, what are some of the differences that, that you see in the evolution of the play or, or the atmosphere that makes it work or not work as well in one place or the other? Not a lot. <clears throat> I'm also a producer in England as well. Um, um, not a lot. Uh, the differences are the stakes in a way. I mean, the, the, the dreadful situation... I don't feel, actually, when I'm on Broadway, I don't feel like a worker. I feel like a gambler. And it's an uncomfortable feeling. Um, I know our show is going to stand or fall by one man's opinion of it. And this is absurd and ridiculous. And it does actually affect my happiness and sense of well-being working in this particular theatre. I, I think that is another... I think that is one of the big problems of, of the New York theatre, is the New York Times. And it really, it really doesn't matter who it is. I mean, I think there's a particularly difficult man there at the moment. But it wouldn't matter who it was. It's just no one man can be an arbiter at all. It's just an impossible situation for one man to hold. I, I think if the New York Times really cares about theatre, either they should stop reviewing, and I'm serious about that, or they should review each play three times on the same page with three different critics. Um, We have in London a dozen critics. Many of them disagree with each other. Uh, No one is preeminent. Even when we had one very important critic, Kenneth Tynan, there were other critics disagreeing with him, and other critics kept their audiences and so on. So I, I think the main difference for me is, as being a worker in the theatre is that I don't feel a worker in the theatre here. I feel more like I'm in a casino. And I have no idea at all. We, um, on Thursday night, well, next Thursday when we open, I have no idea at all which way it's going to go, which, <clears throat> after such a marvellous rehearsal period, we've, had, we've enjoyed it so much. And Hume and Jesse are wonderful actors. Peter Hall is one of the world's great directors. And Robert, all of us, we've had a marvellous time. And now, sitting here, thinking we've done a reasonable job, it could all collapse because one man doesn't like it. That is a very unhappy-making feeling. And that does not exist when you are going, getting close to opening in England. No, because There's no sense of it ending suddenly. There, it won't. You see, if, if I have a play or... If you have a cast like Hugh and Jesse um, in England, there is an audience for that which will give you a month without any difficulty. And if you have a month in the theatre and then you come off, then I think people have decided. Um, But it's not getting a month that matters. And if you can get a month out of reasonably full theatres, and if the play is working, then the word of mouth will, will... continue your work. It's, it's not getting that sort of month, five weeks 
run at it. I, I, there's a perfectly dreadful play in London at the moment by a man called Charles Wood who has written some very good plays called Beyond the Garden, uh, Cross from the Garden of Allah. And it's a really bitchy, horrible play. I really don't like it at all, but it's got Glenda Jackson and uh, Nigel Hawthorne in it. And they've run now for two months. Nobody who's gone to it likes it, but everybody has gone to it. Um, and it got the most dreadful reviews, all unanimously. But it, it gets its month, five weeks, it's got two months. It's got two stars. <laughs> so that is a very, very big difference. We have an audience that will follow performers and writers. Um, and if the critics don't like it, well, they still want to make up their own mind. Well, I think we had that. I think we had it until recently. Well, I mean, tell me, when you, uh, you see, when you say, uh, uh, I feel like a gambler working here, I don't feel like a gambler. I suppose I've been in there. I never, I never did. It's a, it always was a gamble theater. In the West End, it was, too, to some degree. I mean, it was a gamble well, I, in London. But I tell you, when you say that, did you feel that when you did, uh, when you did um, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Well, that was the first thing I'd done here. Well, did you feel it? No, I didn't know because I didn't know how important that review was. I mean, I think... Uh, it, since I, then, I've had a huge flop as well. Some, <laughs> I think some of you are sitting around... I think some of you are feeling like gamblers because we've been sitting around drinking between rehearsals <laughs> and I was crying the blues all the time and telling you what a mess this theater was. No, no, the fact is it is. It, it does depend upon that review, doesn't it? Well, it depends a great deal upon it. There's no question. But it, do, it doesn't ultimately depend upon it. For... Uh, it doesn't ultimately depend upon it. The economics get involved here, actually, so that you can't just simply say we're at the mercy of one man. You are, to a large degree, if that one paper tell, tells everybody that this is something they should see and they must not miss and, uh, and makes it seem like it's an important document, the way they made, for instance, uh, Dream Girls was a great document about American life. According to the New York Times, it was the most penetrating statement on America with music reflecting the true atmosphere and the conflict of life in America. That was what it was in the New York Times. I thought it was like a show out of Las Vegas. I thought it should have been in Las Vegas. And <laughs> it, 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 it seemed to me a screamer with absolutely no quality whatsoever. But that was it. Now, that helped it a great deal, there's no question. And if you get that kind of notice, it's going to help you a great deal. Uh, on the other hand, a musical gets to be a different situation because you're, it's a, kind of like you're at the bank. It's a business proposition that settles down for a while. People somehow in corporations pay these ticket costs without worrying about it, and they, they buy block sales on it, and the musical somehow staggers it along year after year, losing a lot of money sometimes, too. But the theater is a different thing. There's no question you, you, you're, you're at the mercy the reaction of that paper to some degree. Now, I, I do think the same thing, though, as you said about England, exists here. If you can keep the play on for a month or two months, well, if and if audiences come enough, then you can probably, with a little luck, if you can find a s financial structure to keep it going, you'll find your audience for it, in spite of the times. I, and I must admit, I find myself always feeling if the play is good, somehow we're going to make it work. I, I, I've never felt that I gambled, though I've been the greatest gambler in this country practically for the last 40 years, but I've never felt that I gambled. I, I felt this is a play that's going to be interesting. I can't wait to get it on. I can't wait to do it. And it excited me. And I always felt everybody's going to have to like this play. I would find the next morning after we opened that they didn't like it so much. And then I would find that they, 
the ticket buyers <laughs> didn't show up, and, and I had to face the fact that perhaps what I felt happened with me as I read it, we didn't manage to get over on the stage. Uh, I, what happens now, however, I think is that you face the same experience as you did 30 years ago if you don't get the press to help you, but then you could keep it going longer and try and find your audience. You did in this kind of, in this town have 10 critics, too, not so long ago, really, 20 years ago. But, and, uh, but, but 20 years ago, we, 20 years ago, we were waiting for the latest play to come from America, you see. I mean, it, oh, I remember when this was the theater center of the world. Um, before, it's in the early 50s, throughout the 50s, there, was, there were more important things happening in the American theater than there was in the British theater. Until, until 56, with uh, Look Back in Anger, we, we had, um, you know, plays like Separate Tables and so on, Rattigan and Fry and so on. But they were not really setting the world on fire. They were those... Those are those solid plays, yeah. That's right, and we had yeah. those. But the really exciting plays were the Albies and the Millers and the yeah, uh, Williams and so on. So uh, it, it is different now. You, then you had ten critics. Well, the question yeah. now, if yeah. we're talking about then... Now, which this is as a, it sounds about as depressing as the weather, and if it really is this way, when we're talking about right here and now versus say ten years ago or twenty years ago, there's two things that interest me. First of all, why do you do it if it's this way? And then, are there in fact is this a phase? Is it a transition? Are there solutions to all of the twenty depressing things, or is it something that is at its end? I mean, it sounds like if I were being a realist, I would say I would never invest in the theater. I would never try to do a, a play. Um, why do you do it? Well, strangely enough, I never did invest in the theater, except a hell of a lot of time and energy and work. I always got money from uh, from sources, and I invariably would say, look, I, I think this is going to work out, but I'm not trying to sell you a money-making proposition. Sometimes it turned out to be a money-making proposition. That made me feel good, but... I, uh, I always felt that the, uh, the, as a, an investment, it's so dicey that it's insane, and I'm terribly anxious to get people who could take a loss and not worry about it. When I have people come to me with $1,500 or $2,000 whom I knew really couldn't afford it, I'd, try, I'd be always inclined to talk them out of it, because it just made me feel too unhappy if it didn't work. And... Uh, <coughs> I, and I, I don't, I'm not uh, a gambler. I mean, I, I, I don't like going and playing the tables or anything. That doesn't appeal to me. Gambling doesn't appeal to me, period. So I never saw the theater as a gamble. I saw it as something that I was caught in. I sucked into it, and there I was over the years, and I'm still sucked into it. And uh, I, I've managed somehow to have enough success so that I could keep an office going and keep doing it. Because all through those years, I would say, I can give this another three years, and then I've got to try and do something that makes sense. This is an absolute insanity. And then somewhere in those next three years, I would have a success. And I, I, even when I had that, I'd find myself saying, well, that success is going to keep me in business for another three years. And then after that, I'm going to do something sensible. <laughs> and now, for God's sakes, I'm 70 years old. I'm still doing it. And in three years, I'm going to stop doing it, I swear, and do something sensible. That's about are, are we masochists? I mean, you're here again after, you know, it all depends on one review and all the things you're saying. Same, you know, what, you know. What's driving you to, to this torture? Well, no, you don't. I read Brian's play, and I loved the play. I didn't know him. I just read the play, and I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful piece of work. I liked the argument, and I liked the conversation. I liked the people. I thought what it has to say about their lives 
touched me enormously and moved me, and on the way it has something to say about the world we live in. And so the play appealed to me enormously. It would have appealed to me at any time in my life. And uh, it's exactly the kind of play that I like doing. And I, I remember I didn't know Brian, and he had, didn't send me a copy, and I didn't talk about it and worry about it. I just knew when I read it I wanted to do it. And uh, I, that's the same feeling I had. It's just that the, it's, a, it's a tougher proposition now. It's true. I find myself saying if I can only get people to come in through May, then I think they'll find if we've done the play as well as we hope, we'll find whether they, the argument appeals to them, whether the life in that play connects with them. I worry about May because if the New York Times doesn't give us the help we need, it'll be tough getting through May because it's so goddamn expensive to keep the things running these days. Those are the problems that have gotten worse and worse. As the cost gets more, the operation gets more. And you're on the edge of of it being a just being a, a being a business. I mean, musicals have become all lousy because they are. They're nothing but a corporation. They've got in a way. But I, I do it because I, that's what I do. And uh, I mean, it's it's the same as Robert. I mean, I I get an idea and I just write it, and um, that's what I do. That's it. And and that's the hope, really for the theatre because it, whatever happens it won't die it'll change um, and in a way you see in the dark ages perhaps we're in a, a minor dark age now the theatre is carried by the musical artists the jackers the acrobats the minstrels and so on and that's what keeps it alive sure it's a um, and someone said I wish I remembered who but the playwright's spiritual an- ancestor is not a poet but a juggler, and I'm sure that's right. I am too. That uh, I think I think the the subtextual reason for the success of whose life is anyway was that it was a high wire act. Really, I mean, the people came in to the theatre and they sat there for ten minutes and then thought, "That's all we're going to see with this guy in the bed. Can they keep it going for two hours?" Um, and it became a sort of bit of showing off. Really, can you keep this? ridiculous situation just one just moving his head can you keep it going and I think under the sub the, the reason for success was because we did manage to keep it going and people thought well that's fantastic fancy managing to do that so the, 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 that's why it worked and this one is um, a two-hander in real time um, it has a similar sort of danger and uh, if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't so it may not be so bad. You see, the music, the musical artists have come back and t- pinched our theatres because we haven't been using them. But it's it's not. At least the the building is still there, and it may be that. No, well, I'm not knocking that. I, I, yes. I mean, I would like to have more jugglers. As a matter of fact, yeah, so right. It's uh, there's a, a little bit the entertainment, the so-called entertainment value of so many of the musicals is lost because there isn't any center. I tell you, I think those guys all did it. Those jugglers, though, were acting out things. They yeah. were they were great pantomimists. They were more than just that. Yeah, right. That's right. So yeah. there was always a center to it, and I have a feeling if there wasn't a center, the damn thing didn't work. That juggler was going from town to town, going out of business. <laughs> I said, well, I've seen him juggle, unless there was some center to what he was doing and some expression that went beyond how, how skillfully did this unless there's something beyond that that didn't work but I think also the, the impact of, of television is, is terrible all through so I actually think it's lowering the general taste in theatre in well, drama and so on I, I think yeah. it, you know it comes to you in about ten minutes and um, 
and it lowers the discrimination of the people. It lowers the appreciation of what is proper, you know, in, in the theatre. And people, it, I don't know, I mean, perhaps people who are, I would gather they're watching hours, seven hours of television a day, it's a pretty depressing statistic. Um, at the end of that, I mean, my God, you could hardly think at all, I should think. And, and certainly I do think it, television drama, American television drama, in these little bursts of hyped up things, and I, I tried to work in American television drama, I mean, I failed totally, because, I mean, I, they'd say, but the scene is too long, and I said, well, it can't be any shorter, because I wouldn't get it, well, they said, well, you know, but we've got to break it in two and provide a cliffhanger at the end, and you realise, as a television dramatist, all you're doing is trying to deliver the same number of people from the end of one commercial break to the beginning of the next, and that is your job. Now, the same way as it makes writing and destroys writers and destroys talent, I think it may be destroying audiences too. Um, and the experience of the theatre, you have to work at it. I, I, Bob said a marvellous thing in rehearsal the other day. We, we had a rogue laugh. There's a very painful line. And for some reason, we were getting a laugh every night. And we kept altering it, changing it, retiming it. Putting, and finally... We thought we did it, and, and I said, I'm sure that'll work. And Robert said, well, if that doesn't bloody well work, I'm going to call the audience for rehearsal. <laughs> and, and it was a good one, but it's true. Audiences are rehearsed. They, they, they're trained. And it's, what is sad is, is that when, as, as, as they become fewer and fewer, and plays, the number of plays to see audiences aren't getting their proper rehearsals. So they're becoming bad audiences. You know, they, they, we really have to take them in hand a bit. Well, is it part of the evolution, possibly, with, in the 20th century, uh, theatre evolving out of a popular form? Is theatre becoming what polo is to football in American sport? Well, theatre always was. Always was. Special. It was always a special thing. I mean, even in our the great days here or in Europe or anywhere, the amount of the percentage of a population which saw some important piece of work was one percent, half of one percent. But what happens in the theater is that it creates a, a contagion, if it's good. It goes out and out and out. It affects everything else. It affects, I mean, the guy who's living out in Akron, Ohio, whether he knows it or not, is going to be affected by it when something takes place because somehow... It, it, it changes the quality of taste and the quality of one's viewpoint on life. And, and the, the imitators and various others take place. And so there's a, there's a, there's a va vast effect that a, a marvelous play suddenly arriving on the scene will have if it changes the course of, of uh, and character of the theater. That's absolutely and, uh, true, Robert. That's why you've been doing something sensible all your life. <laughs> Well, what about out well, here? Is this is uh, does it seem as depressing, or does it seem we're involved in this business because of the inherent quality and hope of of transforming people, or are we involved in a in a dinosaur? I mean, we you are. could realistically talk about that. I think this, that uh, you're involved to some degree now in Dinosaur because there are very th few things that have taken place in the theater that have, have affected the, the thinking and the quality of living in the country. And that did take place here and in Europe. It's all through history. Right? 
had as uh, that, that something played only in Paris, but by the time it got through having its effect on through the country, and the, the tastemakers grabbed it and used it, and it affected writing and thinking. That still happens, but it hasn't happened here recently. And I think it won't happen until we can get that theater going again, really going again. I, I mean, I know there's work being done on Broadway and a lot of it, but most of it I, I don't feel is fully realized. It's filled with talent. It's as if, it's, it's sort of, as I always think, it's sort of psychosexual improvisations, but not fully realized plays. And, and, and a lot of those improvisations are filled with talent. It's the quality of the conversation and the life of the exchanges in them are quite marvelous. But it's as if the writer never finally really comes to terms with a disciplined, complete evening. And so that those playwrights that we talk about in their best plays are like great gladiators compared to what we're getting most of the time, even in the in the best of off-Broadway. Um, I'm sorry. Anyway, you were asking... No, I, does anyone have any comments on this dismal state? Mr. Whitehead, you, you feel that there are no American writers, uh, no American playwrights deserving to be kind of serious work on Broadway? No, I don't. I think there are some American writers, yes, and there are plays that are being written all the time in this country. But... Good play. I think not any really good, really fully realized plays. I don't think so. There's not many anyhow that ever get written. God knows, isn't it? Candide, who said how many plays were produced in Paris last year? And what's the name of that character in Candide? He said, Oh, well, Han He said, A hundred and three plays. He said, That's a lot of plays. He said, How many of them are good? He said, Two, three. That's a lot of plays, a lot of good plays, and and that's a little bit what it is. So I don't. I, but there there are plays being written, but I think those writers, if they are good, somehow find that the plays are haven't measured up to a level of getting it really produced around the countryside somewhere. And they, if they keep writing, they'll eventually find their way into television. Which means, as Brian said, you're working, you are working for. So, yeah, you're working for the salesman, for the corporation. There's no question of it. I mean, actually, all through history, the big business wanted to get its hands on the arts. It always, there's always a feeling in business that if we could get a hold of the arts, we could make it make sense because they're a bunch of nuts, they're crazy, they're idiots, and they're undisciplined, and it's absolutely insane, and if we could only get a hold of it, we could make it make sense. Well, now they have gotten a hold of it, and you can see what sense they made of it, because they have it. They do have it. How, how do you feel, assuming there's someone out there uh, who's a playwright who has potential, that we would agree has, has potential, uh, how do you feel that they would get better as a playwright so that they would write a fully... Ask Brian that. He'll answer that question better than I. I can answer the question, but I'd like to have his answer. Look, the, the only way a playwright gets better is watching his work being done. Ah, yes. But if no one will do it, how do they get better? There is no way. No, there is absolutely no way. No. Well, actually. So somebody's saying that the playwrights aren't any good, so I won't do their work, and the playwrights are saying I can't get any better because no one will do my work. What? There's a catch twenty. Well, no. The fact is that their work does get done. There's a lot of theaters throughout the country that try and find new work and do new work, and uh, try and develop new work. Uh, I think they're having a tough time. But the writer, if he is determined, he'll get that work done somewhere. If it's any good. 
I'm afraid once he gets it done, he's going to find himself getting a job to write a half-hour piece for television, and then he'll be doing that. The, uh, I know two people that it's just happened. And then, and then we just wrote a television drama that got a 39 chair, and everybody in the world is throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars at their feet. Who, for both of these people, for 15 years, have been writing seriously for the theater, have been produced around the country and in New York. And it's real tough mm. to sit there and look at somebody saying, what would you like to write? Which is exactly, my wife happens to be their agent, that's exactly what has happened in the past two weeks. Is that both of these playwrights have had people, many, call them on television say, what would you like to write? We will pay you to do it. Mm. Now, when you've, been, when you've spent 15 years as a playwright writing plays that have been done around the country and still can't get plays that you're trying to do as serious plays produced, after a while, you, I, you know, I, I also wonder if it's a mortal sin as an artist, considering myself, and I'm not a playwright, uh, to want a couch. Uh, Oh, absolutely not. It's, no, it's, of course not. There comes not. a point where you say, hey. No, but, uh, but that's, of course not. No. Um, you must, you know, you're a professional and you, you know, labor is where is high and all that. Sure. Um, of course you must find ways of, of paying playwrights to work. Um, hence, I think, the importance of state subsidy uh, in, in England. I mean, it's not luxurious, but, you know, you can live on also, there is regional theatre, which is very important in England, even though as far as, you know, England seems like just one tiny region, I suppose, to America. But even so, you see, we have real centres in Liverpool and Glasgow and Newcastle, which produce playwrights which, which turn up in London. But, I mean, they, they're nurturing. Um, man who wrote Educating Rita, Willie Russell, for example, I mean, he was working at the Liverpool Playhouse for, for several years. Um, this arose at the Liverpool Playhouse and down it came. So I, and there are regional theatres in America where I am. I mean, the Louisville Actors Studio, which I had some connection with, I wrote a bit of thing. I'm, ter- I'm very impressed with that theatre. That seems a marvellous operation. Um, I mean, they sell out their season 98% before they started. Um, they do this festival of modern American drama, or they did, do they? Are they still doing it? Yeah. I mean, wonderful. They did it just this nine, year, just nine new plays. Nine American new plays. Um, one of those a few years ago was The Gin Game, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, that Hume picked up from there. So practically everything on Broadway has come from one of those theaters or from some play or any competition, almost everything. So there is, there is some opportunities here. I'm, I'm, but I do think there aren't enough. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. And the, late, uh, the, the playwrights that I mentioned just were successful on television, both that for years and have been working on the I think it's mar- I think if the writer has to go out and find his work and, and uh, get paid where he can. I don't expect him to starve while he's. I don't. I don't think you're not. You're, you're not a dedicated. You have a compulsive talent, and you either it works or it doesn't. Then you use it, and it doesn't. You have to make a living any way you possibly can, so that. The game is to try and make it, and if there is in you enough of a need to write a play, then you try it again, but you've got to make your money some other place. Most of those writers that I was naming off and, and here in the 20s and 30s, they didn't have television. I get A lot of them wrote for in the beginning of radio a little bit. A lot of them were newspaper men or press agents, and uh, 
fact, two or three of them were presidents. Worked around the theater, and some were actors. They came out of, so they, they, they kind of were earning, earning their keep in other ways, and out of it came their writing. I think that has to go. I don't do you, slightly, do you feel that there's a, there's such a thing as a serious Broadway play, as opposed to a good, uh, serious drama? What do you mean by that? Do you feel there's a play, there is a drama, let's say, or for that matter, a comedy, that is not a, quote, Broadway show? Well, I, I don't, I don't think of anything as a Broadway show. I think of it as a show that's playing on Broadway. I mean, Broadway show, for those words, shouldn't have uh, anything to do with the quality of the work. I suppose you, anything that's playing on Broadway can be considered a Broadway show. And I've heard myself referred to as a guy who produces Broadway shows, and that's perfectly true. I do. Uh, some are better than others. All of them are worthwhile, as far as I was concerned, one way or another. Well, you as a producer have an extremely fine reputation for your taste level, uh, as well as the place you've produced over the years. Uh, so I would not, I would, for no other reason than because of that, I would exclude you. But if, do you feel there's any problem with producers feeling, well, this isn't, this isn't going to make me any money? No, I tell you, it's, if you feel that, you shouldn't do it. Uh, I don't, that's, that. Uh, I don't, you can't look at it and say, this is commercial and this isn't commercial. There have been once or twice in my career when I put together deals with a production that I thought was going to set me up for life, and those are the ones that failed, for the most part. And the ones that I struggled over often and felt, well, I've got to do this play because I, I, I find it so enticing. Strangely enough, I would find I was suddenly making a lot of money from it. And... Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I think when you start thinking in terms of this is no good, but it's going to make money, or this is, is good, and it's going to lose money, when you start thinking that way, you can go crazy. You go absolutely nuts. So All you can do is... Do you have any idea why, why somebody uh, such as Sam Shepard has never had a Broadway show then? He's considered a pretty good playwright. Well, I don't think he's written a play that, that, that is a really f fully developed evening, as far as I'm concerned. It's, if he plays... If he has, then I think the play should be on Broadway. Uh, it's just, I, I think that, I think that it, I think a lot of his plays are terribly self-indulgent. He has got, I mean, there's a talent there, there's no question. <coughs> he's, 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 he can write a confrontation in a scene with considerable strength. But the play as a whole seems to me to finally be always self-indulgent and unrealized. So you yeah. mentioned probably ten from Odette's future. Sure. Uh, great many of these playwrights, all of whom were indeed very good American playwrights. I'll bet I can name you ten very good, very often produced American playwrights who have never had a show done on Broadway. Can it be that none of these playwrights know how to write a show for Broadway? I can't answer that question. I can't answer that question. Uh, I think it's a misfortune if they, that, that they didn't get produced uh, in theaters that were larger and had a a larger audience coming to them. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know the plays, and I, I, I can't, I can't respond to that. But, but doesn't this tie into with what Richard's saying? It, you're saying, you know, any producer who says, "Is this a play for Broadway?" Do you think the possibility exists that, in fact, many producers take into consideration all the factors involved with Broadway, what they call, what is that audience that's looking for a play on Broadway? and say, in fact, this play 
is not a Broadway play. This play won't make it. I mean, don't, don't you think in reality that that could very well be, be the truth with many producers versus just the objective, this is a good play? Well, I think there are certain, oh yeah, there are conditions that you look at. I've done a couple of plays with Kate Hepburn and I, the, the fact that I had her in the play made a lot of money. I know, I was perfectly aware of that. But, and there's, you, you sometimes will view it according to the ingredients that you have with you. Uh, on the other hand, you, you read a piece and you feel this this will be better realized anyway in a 300-seat house. And uh, and, and another one that should be in another. You, you, the environment in which you put the play makes a tremendous amount of difference I think, to a play, don't you, Brian? I don't, I think it's yeah, but I, I... Drama is a popular art. Uh... It's not an academic exercise. And no matter how serious, quotes, you want to be, the playwright has the duty to make it entertaining. Uh, in the best sense of entertaining, he has to engage a body of people's attention and hold it for a couple of hours. Now, that is the given. That's what, we, that's what one tries to do. I don't... Th and if a play does that, and if a play can do that, then any producer will want to do it if he's convinced that it will hold a body of people for a given, you know, for that time, will entertain them. Um, I don't think we ought to have... The, I, I, I mean, why I choose not to be in the National Theatre, though I happen for all sorts of reasons to be having a play in the National Theatre, is that I, I approve of the system of the West End. Um, I also approve the National Theatre. Without the National Theatre, the West End wouldn't be as good as it is. Uh, but uh, for a new play, I would rather be out there in the marketplace where I think drama belongs, along with the, all the other con artists who are working in the, <laughs> in the marketplace. And I believe that's where we belong. I also believe that if you have a proper subsidised institution which keeps the classics there all the time. I meant to, if you look at a London paper, I bet this week you could see three Shakespeare's, Chekhov and Ibsen um, any, in London any week you could see a large number of the classics. That is another reason, I think, why you desperately need something like the Lincoln Centre to be subsidised operation. operation, keeping those classic plays in the consciousness of the people you, not, you need them to train your actors, you need them to train the audiences. You also, they're also wonderful plays, you need to see them. So, now I've got lost again. I, I don't think there is a difference between a good play and a popular play. A, a, a good play is a popular play. So one thing I want to bring up, a difference of opinion I have is a literary manager at a theatre and having been literary manager at the Beaumont for a period of time, I have a shelf of like 17 good plays. I, I believe there are good plays. What I've come up against, I've been involved in producing and directing, and what I see, and I, I have good plays. If someone wants 17 good plays and can give me the production, they've got the plays. I see the big problem being how to get the plays done. I do think, of course, the writers that go to Hollywood exist, but I feel the plays are there if the opportunity exists to get them done. We do have Louisville, we have various theaters around the country, but 
here in New York, and maybe this is the changing face of Broadway, maybe Broadway is not destined to be the place to premiere important American work. Maybe it's the place to finally bring it ultimately. Because I, you know, I think the plays exist. I think if the solution exists, it exists somewhere in the process of allowing the writers to do the work. Solving that will maybe create more and more work. If we can find the solution, how do you do? You are doing a, what we're calling a serious play or a worthy play or an important play. You are doing it. How many other people are doing it? Maybe there's a new generation that has to either say forget the theater, or I'm committed to starting over. I want to start a new revolution, a new cycle of plays happening. Well, you know, writing has always come out of social upheaval. It's always been following any kind of devastation. There's always been an outgrowth of writing. And uh, so I guess we may have some writing coming up after these adventures we're going into in Libya and various other places. But, uh, I mean, England, it's interesting, really. The, the writing in England was getting duller and duller through the 30s and, and, into, the, and into the 40s. When, our, when we were having a kind of a good time and we were, there was a protest in the air here, England's writing for the theater, at least, was as dull as could be. Suddenly, with the, with the upheaval caused by the war and the the dissolution of the of the empire, a lot of writing suddenly burst in the scene eight or nine or ten years after the war, and it's been going since. We, as a matter of fact, when we got into the comfortable Eisenhower years and an expansive economy, the writing began to get less and less interesting, and it uh, has remained less and That's, less interesting. I think it was, some of the protest was quelled by the stupidity of the McCarthy time, but that, along with the great comfort of our economy and Eisenhower time, since then, we've never recovered, in a sense. I do believe that a drama arises in a country which is worried about its identity. And it all it happens, and it's, it's text yes. stuff. The, the Greeks, the first theatre, I mean, it arose because the Greeks were creating a new society, a new city-state, and they had all sorts of problems to solve moving from the agrarian side, all that. Shakespeare's society, Shakespeare's society, reads like modern England. They had rampant inflation, um, terrific unemployment, uh, people moving from the countries to the towns. They had constant trouble between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, which we still, I mean, it reads, if you read the headline, it's just like England now. Um, once, if someone said to me, you would not see any play again written after the death of uh, Ben Johnson and be up to 1890, that sort of 200 years, I wouldn't mind much. What would be missed? Sheridan, Goldsmith, I mean, Restoration Drum, which I don't like much anyway. I mean, there's, not, there's nothing much there because it was a very complacent society. The age of reason of the 18th century and then all that Victorian smugness. And it wasn't until the Victorian consensus began to collapse, actually in 1864 with Thomas Robertson who wrote Cast, the first English play about class, which we've been writing ever since. Um... Not until that consensus broke down and we began what became worried for ourselves about ourselves for a moment, then we got a flurry of plays, Goldsworthy and uh, Barker and uh, Shaw and so on. Then, it got, then we got complacent again. And it wasn't until 56, and it's very interesting, the Sewers Adventure, 
which demonstrated beyond a peradventure that we were a third-rate power with not capacity to act independently. And we were wrapped over the knuckles by America for being so stupid. Rightly, absolutely rightly. Uh, if only someone could repay the compliment. Unfortunately, no one's powerful enough. But the fact is, in 1956 was the Suez Crisis, where Dean Acheson said the problem with England, uh, Britain, is that it's lost an empire and hasn't found a role. And it's true. And that was the date of Look Back in Anger, from which exploded the modern the British theatre. And those two things go here. So America is unbelievably complacent and has been for a large number of years in such a complacent well, society. since the end of the war. That's right. It is unlikely that you're going to get of great drama because drama is a popular art and also drama is the art above all that investigates conflict the theatre of a society is the place where those conflicts are worked out and I, I think it's a good reason why America which is very comfortable with itself on the whole doesn't doesn't go in and has no doesn't feel the need as, uh, as you did in the 30s to say, what the hell's happening to our society? I mean, what's happening? I mean, why are we failing? A great sense of conflict within the society which finds itself out in drama. And I, I, the plays you see that are coming up, the conflicts are terribly personal. I mean, the, I saw Esmond uh, in London. Edmund or Esmond, is it? Yeah, Ed, Edmund. Well, it was a the, the, the ter terrific dialogue, but... I, I didn't feel it reaching out beyond the story into the whole society. Just didn't feel it. Um, and I feel that with a lot of uh, American plays, that there isn't really that sort of fundamental schisms in the society which would find their way out into drama, which is why you describe it as psychosexual. Because That's it's right. about individuals and their problems. Whereas a really play that reverberates has to use the, the society as the sounding board for that tiny string piping away in the theatre. I, I think that's the reason why there's not a lot of great American writing at the moment. And what there is... There is. You're quite right. When you think of the plays, I'd say Tennessee Williams, he came from was a whole society where there was still this great conflict. Well, he came out of the Depression, you see. Actually, of course, there's a whole outburst of writing from the South, and a lot of our very best writers came out of the South, including Tennessee Williams. From that. But there's a that, classic that, identity that, crisis that, that was situation. That was a crisis following the Civil War, as a matter of fact. So out of that, you've read a lot of writers, uh, Faulkner. But then, of course, you see, we, we did it after the... We didn't really have much theater until O'Neill came. We had a lot of theater, but there wasn't a great deal of American theater going on until O'Neill started to write, and then it got to be an American theater. I mean, we were sort of imitating the English, the European theater. Along came, uh, at the time of the First World War, along came O'Neill, which seemed to rope right out of the ground, or the earth of the country, and suddenly you had that. And then, of course, following the First World War, you had that whole bunch of writing through that upheaval in the 20s, and then we got into the Depression years, which is a bigger upheaval than ever, and then you got another body of writing, which took us right through the war until we got to these expansive years after the self-satisfaction of having felt we solved the war almost single-handedly, and here we have the only world, the only country in the world with an economy left. We had it, and we sat down feeling we've done a great thing for everybody, and our complacency took over. Our writing became less and less, 
You're absolutely right. Whenever the writing was really exciting, when it was on fire, we had problems in the nation. No question of that. It seems to me that you're talking two different things. One thing I hear is, I, I think there's a basic disagreement among people, certainly four people have spoken about whether there is good theater going on right now. I, I think another point would be that there are theaters around this country, building houses, as you said about ATL, 98% capacity, as are many other large regional houses, some of them with 500 or 700 or 1,000 seat houses, filling those the theaters for new plays. Uh, some of these plays have been substantial hits around the country in regional theaters. Execution of Justice by Emily Mann might be an example. And yet, when those plays come to Broadway, if they ever make it to Broadway, they fail. And I think that is because perhaps there is a lack of an audience for them here. And I think the question is, which uh, which you had stated earlier uh, in, in the terms of Las Vegasization, I guess you could call it, Broadway, is just who did that? And how did that occur? And how many plays do we have that someone wants to pay for you or $45 to see? And I, I mean, I think it goes to that much more than it goes to uh, a very revisionist set of thoughts about whether certain plays are great at this day and age or not. If we enter a Victorian era again, we will hear a different set of thoughts about who wrote great plays when. And I don't think that really bears on when those plays were popular in their own time or not. And what we're discussing right now is a question of why it seems impossible in this day and age present serious or comic plays on Broadway. And it, it seems to me that uh, by, by, by laying it at the door of either the modern playwright, by saying they're not writing complete evenings, when in fact they're writing evenings complete enough to satisfy subscriber audiences throughout this country, uh, is, is laying it at the wrong door. The door that belongs to that is at Broadway's door. Now, how that breaks down, I don't know. But there is an unbelievable question of costs here, and an unbelievable lack of ability to show failures. If we look back at the golden age of Broadway, I think we could see a great number of those 300 plays that were produced in any given year that wouldn't be nearly as good as Freeze a Crowd or whatever the name of the TV show is. You'd find a number of them that would be absolutely miserable, as you oh. said from Candide. Yeah. The question is, why can't Broadway produce even failures? <laughs> you have that's a very important question. Well, you're, you're right to a degree. You're absolutely right. Why can't it produce even failures? And that gets to be an economic thing. Uh, you, the, the fact is that in those, when I talked about 200 plays opening in a year, there was a, practically all of them were failures. <laughs> so that it, that's and, and that's a healthy theater because if you have more failures, you'll have more successes. If you have a lot of productions going, that's the main thing. It's like 103 were done in Paris and two and a half of them were good. But that's exactly the same thing. Now, why we why the, the volume of production has been reduced and reduced and reduced? I guess it has something to do with the writing, but it mainly has to do with the economy. Mm. And I again, I simply say that once there is some kind of an upheaval, not one that I want to face at all, I think you'll probably find that there's more theater again. Both the quality of the work and 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 the possibilities of it actually being produced will be greater. I can envision that upheaval. Oh well, I don't want to get into that. No. <laughs> Well, it's an interesting that, but it's a social question. I don't know what your thoughts would be on that, because you've seen so much. I think you probably have some insight into what might have to happen. Well, I mean, I think there's going to be a point when the whole economy is going to collapse on us, isn't there? Some way. I also think specifically... I don't want to have to be around, particularly. It's going to some the, the upheaval, years. in a very simple way, without a revolution tearing down the walls, the upheaval could happen or would happen when someone has the courage and is able to produce a play in a major venue in New York City that doesn't cost three hundred and fifty or five hundred thousand dollars to produce and that an audience can pay ten or eleven dollars to go see and they see that the play is just as good or better 
than what they're paying $45 for. And that's the only way it'll work. Worse than not being able to produce failures, it's hard, isn't it, to produce moderate success? Um, to you know, it's hard, and that is the real mark of the theatre, where where a play right. can run for three months, and the investors get their money back, and uh, you know, everyone gets paid a bit enough, and the play runs for three months. I think that as soon as you have a situation in the theatre, and I think three months is a long time. I think you ought to be able to get your money back in 10 weeks. Um, and as soon as it gets longer than that, um, with, then you're in trouble. As far as I know, Who's Life's It Anyway, which was a successful play, I don't think that ever got his money back. Um, and it ran for, what, six months, and then another time with no time more, and so on. Oh, that's an example of a play that, that was drifting around everywhere in the world, that's trying right. to find a production. We, do you know, for five years we tried to give it away in America. Um, no, we did. The, the publisher published it and he couldn't, find, couldn't get anybody to do it for nothing. Um, nobody would do it for nothing. Yeah, there's a play that just closed in public, which I unfortunately and I'm sad to say I missed. But a play that I understand people saw it was quite a good Sorry to sound like a buddy to America, but it's a play called Roman Code. I understand they have a large cast. I mean, the, the finances were a problem. I mean, the critics seemed to like it. The audiences seemed to like it. Everybody seemed to like it. It's gone. It's gone from New York. Why? The economics. 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 Economics.
I think we will have problems. Yeah, we we are all very worried about it. Um, there will be problems. You know, when you got you know Philistine in power. He's a friend of ours. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. I mean, this is a problem. It will be a problem. Yeah. What one of the national theaters closed because of the cut in the budget? That's right. Uh, Peter closed <coughs> Pottersloe, the small one, um, which galvanized. I mean, he did it. It was. I mean, it was necessary. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a demonstration, but it, the, the shock waves produced the result. You know. Well, closing one of the auditoria in the National Theatre, I mean, it was unacceptable. And money came to reopen it. Well, I, I, I only make a decision uh, to, in relation to the theatre, because that's f foremost in my mind. Oh, how he makes a choice on his own writing to whether he's writing for television or, or the theater. Well, what? And whose life had started out as a television, a television drama, right? That was a television play that I rewrote for the theater. Yeah. Um, which illustrates this sort of, you know, symbiosis in England. Um, the Hugh Whitemore play that was here was also a television play. What was it? Yeah. Anyway about the Krugers, the spies. It's, it's according to the subject, really, according to what I want to do. If I want to do something which seems to me to be a screen medium, I'll write a television or film, if it seems to me to be for the theatre. But I've, I've gone off... Uh, you mean what? what? Well, uh, It's got to be a very big idea for the theatre. And it's got to be, it's got to be theatrical. I, I really don't know, I really don't know how to answer your questions, but there's an awful lot of ordinary theatre which you feel would be better on television. It has to have, it has to be much bigger somehow. And I don't mean the number of characters. Um, Equity hates me, I'm sure. I mean, the last, my last two plays have an average cast of 1.5. <laughs> but the, it, it has to have a size and a compression that will make it work in the theatre. Um, and I don't know how I know that this will be a theatre piece. I must say that I'm, I shan't write for television if this one works for a while because I've got two other plays that I know that, and if I, if I had a theatre play I'd rather write for the theatre than for television and I would like to think that I'll go on doing that now writing for the theatre because I prefer doing it but whilst but it was very valuable to me I learned a tremendous amount about the craft by working in television and particularly you see working with actors really good actors who always improve the play, um, and good directors who will, you know, reveal things to you about that you haven't seen and so on. So it was a marvellous learning experience. And I should probably always pop back occasionally. Incidentally, I think our, one of our finest playwrights only writes for television. 
man called Dennis Potter. Um, he's just written a film, Dream Child, which is a wonderful film. Um, and some of his very best dramatic work in England is only on television because he, he only writes for I think we, we're close to a concluding statement kind of thing, and I, as complex, and this is a question that, you know, everyone's been asking themselves for the last number of years that I, I mean, who's involved in the theater, and whether this is a question that was asked back 400 years, I'm not sure that it was necessarily all that different in each era, what your, whether the problem is the plague is killing off the audiences, or whether the problem is the finances are killing off the audiences. I think uh, it's important, uh, and, and this gets a little philosophical probably, but ultimately the final question is why are we doing it and we're doing it uh, is also the answer. And I think on that note, I would just like to hear one little final capper maybe from each of you on a, a little bit of a prophecy. If you if you knew what were ha was going to happen with this dismal situation. What do you think in the next five to ten years the state is, what is going to happen? Well, I know what's going to happen here. I mean, I'm, I don't know about here, really. I think, I, I think England's in such a terrible mess. I have great hopes for the theatre. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to say something in relation to what you two guys are saying, which made a great deal of sense. It seemed as if I was discussing the um, the fate of the theater in relation to the lack of writing, and uh, as if you were saying it's really an economic thing. Uh, actually, the fact is it's both, and I'm very, very aware of it. And there are times when I have outbursts of absolute rage because of the goddamn economy, and that's why. And then there are times when I when I feel the same thing about the writing and about somebody I know who hasn't written a word for the theater in the last ten years, and I know he has some talent. And I know he's making a lot of money. So I'll have that. Actually, there's a combination of two things. The economy has created a, a condition making it much, much more difficult for the, for the writer. And that same economy, in terms of television, has created a condition that makes it terribly available to the writer. And the writer should certainly go and make money and live the good life. I don't mean that he shouldn't somehow, but I think it, it, it's too tantalizing, and it's, it's eliminated from the scene a lot of good theater writers, and I think that is a real problem, and, and which has to break down, and I think it probably will in the next ten years. There'll be a change in that, and maybe somehow it'll come, be back in the theater working away. Ultimately, if you write a play that's successful, you can make more money than any other way, but the time and the energy and the gamble, so to speak, is tougher, and the writer faces it. So there's no question those two elements are, are really balancing completely. As, as for the future, I have the greatest hope. We'll go along messing up and doing our best and fighting about it and somehow struggling, and I just hope there's going to be more shows and more chances for more failures. That's really what I feel and, and what I feel about the future. We just keep doing it. The theater was always in trouble. I mean, when I was here at the time, when I look back now, called the golden years, they weren't golden. I thought they were a mess. I sat around saying the goddamn thing is a mess. We're getting the rotten plays. All the commercial shit comes on. I can't get a decent play on. It's a terrible thing. And it was always terrible. <laughs> it's just a little more terrible now. <laughs> and we want to... We're all going to get out of this. Right. That's right. And we want to wish them absolutely the very best coming up in this dismal period You'll be the shining light in the next couple of weeks. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.